Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 25. We're talking about three parables that I believe refer to Jesus' coming judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. I tie these three parables back to the context, which is chapter 24, where Jesus, on the Tuesday before he was killed on Friday, on the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, was talking to his disciples about what was going to happen to that temple in Jerusalem. He said not one stone would be left on another. And all the events of that discourse have to do with the destruction of Israel in AD 70. I'm taking an Orthodox Preterist viewpoint on chapter 24. And I think that context carries over into chapter 25 when we look at the three parables in that chapter. The first is the parable of the ten virgins, which is talking about the delay of Jesus in coming back. I think he's referring to his delay in coming back to judge them. They were expecting a current a messianic kingdom to happen just right then. And then all of a sudden he's gone. He's crucified. And he doesn't, even though he's risen from the dead, he doesn't show up in order to establish that messianic kingdom. And so he's worried about Jesus is concerned that his disciples not get lazy, but that they keep working in the kingdom. And this parable here, the parable of the talents, which I'm going to take up in this audio, has the same theme to it, that you believers in me need to keep working in the kingdom. And there are certain people who are going to get shut out of the kingdom namely the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let's start with verse 14 and go to verse 15 in Matthew chapter 25. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Now the it that Jesus is referring to is the kingdom of God is in verse 1 when he says it, the king, when he said in verse 1 the kingdom of God is like ten virgins and now he says for it is just like a man. He's, re, he's referring to the same kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's just like a man about to go on a journey. Now, that man who's going on a journey is Jesus who's about to die. He's about to go on his journey to heaven. That works well with interpretation and Orthodox Protestant interpretation of this parable. It doesn't work so well when if you're talking about Jesus coming back at the end of the world because Jesus was not about to go on a journey 2,000 plus years later, later before he comes back to judge the world. So this, is, this parable is 8070. It's just like about a man... Like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves, and of course those are the apostles, evangelists, the workers in the kingdom, he entrusted his possessions to them. And Jesus is saying, I'm turning my kingdom over to you while I'm gone. I'm going to heaven. Verse 15, the one he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. And the talents is a type of money that was used back then. It was a measure of weight, actually. And... Jesus uses those measures of weight to refer to gifts that his followers have. Some people have more than others. One, some has five, some have two. Now, the term talent was originally a measure of weight, as my NIV study Bible says, and that weight was about 75 pounds. So, talents is a ton of money. It's a ton. It doesn't say whether it's gold or silver talents, but either way, it's a lot of money, a lot of talent. It later on referred to a unit of coinage. And it's very interesting that uh, our I, our word talent comes from this parable. Or as we when we say somebody has a talent, this comes from this parable. The Holman Christian Study Bible has a note that says that a talent was worth six thousand denarii, denarii, and a denarii was equal to a day's wage. So that's six thousand days worth of work. So it's a good bit of money. This parable is very similar to the parable of the pounds in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, and that causes some people to say that the parable of the pounds is the same thing as the parable of the talents. Calvin holds that view, for example. I'm not going to take a stand on that. I don't think it really matters here. Adam Clark makes an interesting observation. He says, This parable is about Jesus' servants working while he's gone, 
Whereas the ten virgins parable is about Jesus' servants waiting while he's gone. It's a slight difference because when you wait, that means you look with confident expectation for him to come back. And the idea, of course, is you're working while you're waiting. I don't think that that, that is a complementary, not contradictory. Now, note that we're all not created equal in our gifts and our talents. Some people are highly gifted. Some are just ordinary Joes. doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with it. Because you will see that the five-talent guy and the two-talent talent guy is going to get rewarded the same way with many things. We'll see as we go on later in the, in the parable. So the idea is you use your talents each according to your own ability. He gave some each according to his own ability, which, which means that some people have got bigger work to do because they got more ability to do the work. And some people have less work to do. They're given less work, given less talents because they have less ability to do the work. That's human nature. That's the way we're created. And we ought not to look at some other Christian and say, oh, I'm jealous of him. He's got more gifts than I do. And besides, you probably have more gifts than he does in other areas anyway. So that's not the point. The point is, is that whatever you got, you give it all to him and invest it in his kingdom. No one can complain about the diversity of gifts that exist in the body of Christ because it was the master who distributed the gifts. Am I going to go to Jesus and say, gee, I'm Jesus jealous of you because so-and-so is a better teacher than me. He's got more gifts. He's got a good radio voice, and I don't. Well, are we going to do that? I don't think so. Go to Matthew 25, verses 16 through 18. The man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. He invested in a business somewhere. Verse 17, in the same way the man with two earned two more. He did the same thing, invested and got two more talents. 18, but the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now we notice there's a big difference between the five-talent man, the two-talent man, and the one-talent man. The one-talent man did not invest in the kingdom. Now, I'm going to say to you that this one-talent man is the same thing as the five foolish virgins or as the uh, wicked slaves at the end of Matthew 24, all of these metaphors refer to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rabbinic order, the apostate Jewish kingdom that killed Jesus. And this is what this one talent man is. Now, I know the tendency is to read this parable and say, that's just talking about a, a Christian who's been given gifts by God, but he doesn't use them. You know, it's all application and no interpretation, usually. No, this is referring to the Pharisees and Sadducees who did not, Invest in the kingdom because they didn't believe in Jesus. Go to Matthew 25, verses 19 through 21. After a long time, the master of those slaves came. That's Jesus. He delayed a long time. There's that delay again. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Now, of course, the two options is does that mean Jesus waited a long time to the end of the world or did he wait a long time to 70? Well, remember, a long time in the course of a person's lifetime would be about 40 years. 40 years is a long time when compared to a person's lifetime. And notice that the master of the slaves came within his own lifetime. So even in the parable, you're not talking about a period of time longer than a life. So I, I don't have any problem with continuing with, the, with my idea of fitting this in with the context of Matthew 24. And this is 87 he's talking about. Now, there might be a problem here, is it referring this to AD 70. Why would Jesus be dealing with his ministers, with his apostles and evangelists and workers at AD 70? He's not going to hand out rewards to the end of time. Well, how about the idea that he's going to give them much responsibility in the expanding church at AD 70? So they're going to put you in charge of many things. I'm going to be put you in charge of the church and the church's work. 
Now, it could be that the long time actually doesn't mean anything. It's just an incidental detail of a parable. That's always that possibility. But anyway, I don't think it, it, those are considerations that would derogate from the 80-70 interpretation. Of. Now, when the five-talent man and two-talent man are put in charge of things, again, that depends on how you interpret the parable. But if it's 80-70, it means he's put in charge of, they're put in charge of things on the earth. But if it's in the world, they're put in charge of things in heaven. And this is where this idea comes from, that Christians are going to have administrative duties in heaven. I've heard that idea floating around. I don't really know what I think about it, but I've heard it. Now, notice the word few in verse 21. This is the master saying to the to the five-talent man, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things, even though he had more talents than everybody else. He was faithful over a few things. Well, how can that be few? Well, in my view, it means relative to all the spiritual things in the kingdom, even though he had more talent, more talents than his fellow worker, the two-talent guy, but relative to all the spiritual things in the kingdom, it doesn't matter how much talent, it doesn't matter how much talent he has compared to all the stuff that's out there that needs to be done and is being done by Christians, it's just a little stuff. And that's a good thing for us to look at. I don't care what a big shot you are in the church of Jesus Christ. Compared to all the stuff that's going on in the world in the name of Jesus, what you're doing is actually pretty small. I don't care if you've got a 16,000 square foot house. It's what you're doing is pretty small. And Jesus says, I will put you in charge of many things. Again, I think that's in the church after 87. I don't think he's referring to heaven. But at any rate, the disciple gets put in charge. He's, he does a few things, but then he gets put in charge of many things. So you see the, the reward there. It's kind of like interest. You work for God and he gives you back more than what you put in. Share your master's joy. Notice that working for Jesus creates joy. It's fun to invest your time and talent in the kingdom. It's fun. It's joyful. I don't think anybody's ever done it will deny that, despite the hardships and all. Everybody knows it's a joyous thing to work for the Lord. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 22 through 23. Then the man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more talents. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Now notice. And then he says, share your master's joy. Notice, Jesus said exactly the same thing to the two-talent man as he did to the five-talent man. No difference. The point is, you give everything, all of your abilities, you invest all of your abilities and talents in Jesus' kingdom, and God's going to give you back many things. He's going to put you in charge of many things. You're going to share in his joy. You don't need to be comparing yourself to the five-talent man and saying, eh, he, he, he gave more to Jesus than I did. Well, he gave according to his ability, and you give according to your ability. Just do the best you can according to what you've got, and Jesus will put you in charge of many things and let you share his joy. The look there, look, I've earned two more talents. The man was excited about his master's return. He was excited about the, the interest he made on those two talents. Look, I'm giving you two talents back, more than you gave me. What's the application for the Christian, for Christians today? We should not be hangdog about how much we haven't done for the Lord as long as we have faithfully used what we have had and worked with it. And notice in this parable, the two-talent slave did not look down on himself because he made less than his fellow slave. And notice here, share your master's joy because of the genitive in the Greek. You never know whether it's subjective or objective, and so everybody likes to play with this. It could be share, when it says share your master's joy, it could be share the joy belonging to the Lord, your master's joy, the joy that belongs to Jesus. Or it could be the joy caused by the Lord. Share your master's joy, the joy that the master has caused in the disciples. It doesn't make any difference. The point is you're sharing 
your joy with Jesus, however you look at it. John fifteen eleven. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That's one of the benefits of following Jesus. There's a lot of trouble and persecution, but there's also a lot of joy in it. Hebrews twelve two. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross. That's the joy that was in heaven. Endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. You read the book of Philippians, the joy is everywhere in that book. Matthew 25, 4. Then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man. Now, all right off the bat, you notice something. The other two, the five-talent man and the two-talent man, were excited that the master had come back. Look, 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 master, here's my talent. This guy, I know who you are. You're a difficult man. He's got a lousy attitude to start with. And he obviously didn't know his master, a difficult man, a hard man. Now, why is he a difficult man and a hard man? The five and two-talent man didn't think that about the master. You're going to say that about your kindly master. Of course, the master refers to Jesus. You're a difficult man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you seed. Is that really true? Did Jesus ever do that? Reaps where you hadn't sown and gather where you haven't gathered seed? It sounds like he, he's accusing the master of going out and stealing other people's crops, gathering some, somebody else's crops where somebody else has gathered seed, or reaping where somebody else has sown. As John Gill said, the slave didn't know his master at all. Since when is God difficult? Parallel scripture in Luke 19.21 says this, Home of Christian Study Bible Translation, Because I was afraid of you, for you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. The King James has, you are an austere man, austere, tough, difficult. Bad things to say about Jesus. This saying, you're a difficult man reaping where you haven't sown, John Gill speculates that what Jesus means here, or what the one talent man means here is, you are asking me to reap, but you haven't sown the seeds there. How can I reap when you haven't, when there's no seeds there? So you're asking me to do the impossible. I don't know if that is or not, or it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The detail, the point is, is that the one talent man thinks that the master is not such a good person. He's throwing the blame on God for the slave's own unfruitfulness, on Jesus. Matthew twenty five twenty five. So the one talent man continues. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. He was afraid he was going to invest his money in the kingdom and lose it. And that was the wrong attitude, according to John Gill. Because what I, and I'll say this: investing in God's kingdom is the safest investment one could ever make. So he was foolishly afraid. He hid his talent in the ground. That means he didn't invest it to work in the kingdom. He just quit working for for God. And of course, that refers to, in my opinion, to the Jews and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees who said, no, we're not going to work for the kingdom of God, that Jesus is kingdom, because we don't believe in that. And look when he says, look, you have what is yours. This one talent man is actually thinks that Jesus is going to be happy. I'm giving you back what is yours. Jesus expects a return on his money. He's invested in his service. He expects a return on his money. Go to Matthew 25, verse 26 through 27. But his master replied to him, you evil, lazy slave. And again, that's why I don't think this refers to Christian. I don't think Jesus would say that. You evil, lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would I would have received my money back with interest. In other words, he's saying, well, it doesn't matter how bad you thought I was. All you had to do was invest with the bankers and you'd have gotten some money back with interest. Now, first of all, preliminary point. Remember, interest was illegal in the Old Testament. And you, you might think, well, why is Jesus suggesting investing with bankers and earning usury, which is supposed to be illegal? Remember, in the Old Testament, the loans that were contemplated there were charity loans. Only when people were in a jam like a fire, an earthquake or something, a flood, 
you lent loan money to the principal and you got the principal back with no interest. But that wasn't referring to business investments. And here Jesus is talking about a business investment. There's nothing wrong with investing with bankers. Notice how strong that language is. Jesus says, you evil, lazy slave. Now, the slave was not a thief. And yet Jesus called them evil and lazy. I think he's referring to the Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't think he'd call Christians that. Verse 28 through 20, especially when he tells them he's going to throw them into the place with his weeping and gnashing of teeth in just a minute. Chapter 25, verses 28 through 29. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. That, that's the original five-talent man who invested and got five back. So 100% return on his money, by the way. That's a pretty good return. Take the talent and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And the application of that is the more you invest in the kingdom, the more God's going to turn over to you, the more spiritual truth he's going to give you. And then you take that spiritual truth, go back, use it in the kingdom, he's going to give you more spiritual truth. And it's a never-ending process. The more you give, the more you're going to be given. The more spirituality you have, the more spirituality you're going to be given. And he will have more than enough. You'll have more than enough spiritual blessings to make it through this veil of tears. But from the one who does not have, and that refers to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't have spiritual, they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have spiritual knowledge. Even what he has will be taken from him. He did have the kingdom of Israel. He had all the Old Testament oracles and all that stuff that had been given to him by God. And that's going to be taken away. Again, that fits in with the theme. Your house will be left to you desolate. The nation will be taken away and given to another nation that bears the fruit of it. All those previous warnings of destruction coming in Matthew 23 and 24. This is what he's referring to. In other words, Jesus is telling to the Pharisees, you need to use it or lose it. You need to use the spiritual stuff that's been given to you. And you need to understand that I am the fulfillment of all that old stuff. Testament spiritual stuff that's been given to you, and you better use it or you're going to lose it. Now, this idea of he who has will be given more is a common expression of Jesus, which was used on several different occasions. Matthew 13, verse 12, for whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. The context of this, the disciples did ask Jesus why he was speaking in parables. Chapter 13, parable of wheat and the tares, dragnet. Luke 8:18. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. Context there is Jesus is telling his disciples, don't put your light under a bushel. Don't hide your spirituality. The more light you give, the more you're going to be given. But if you don't have any light, the little light you have is going to be taken away. And he's still talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew 25, verse 30. And I think this verse sort of confirms what I'm saying. It's the nail in the... It's the capstone of my argument, let's put it that way. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness. You really think that's talking about a Christian who just hadn't done enough for the kingdom, this good-for-nothing slave? Jesus is going to throw that lazy Christian into outer darkness, which is, of course, the typical symbol for hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, darkness stands for hell. Another metaphor Jesus talked about, Gehenna. The eternal fire, this is a phrase he used a couple of places, eternal fire, and also the word Gehenna means the place where they burnt trash and corpses. But if you got fire, you got light, and you got darkness here, so hell can't be light and dark at the same time. We don't need to mix the metaphors. The idea is hell is a hellaciously awful place. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a little fire there or a little darkness. It's just bad, really bad. This idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where this one talent man is going to get thrown. Matthew 8, verse 11 through 12. 
alludes to the same thing. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. That's the sons of the kingdom. That's talking about the unbelieving Jews in Matthew 8. So that, again, more contextual evidence that this is what this parable is talking about. Matthew 22, verse 13, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the parable of the wedding feast where the people, somebody tried to get in without a wedding feast, without being washed in the blood, without having the clean linen of Jesus that represents Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus told him, so you're going to be thrown into the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, that's referring to the people who aren't invited to the wedding feast. That's the, Jew, the unbelieving Jews. Now, this weeping thing, weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping is an allusion to the poor outside the wedding banquet, crying for something to be given to them from the wedding feast. Here's a quote from John Gill. This is Gill on Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. The allusion in the text is to the customs of the ancients at their feast and entertainments, which were commonly made in the evening when the hall or dining room in which they sat down was very much illuminated with lamps and torches, but within, but without in the streets were entire darkness, and where were heard nothing but the cries of the poor, for something to be given them, and of the persons that were turned out as unworthy guests, and the gnashing of their teeth, either with cold and winter nights or with indignation that they're being kept out. Some people, another possibility about that gnashing of teeth, besides gnashing the teeth from cold on a winter night, is the idea that Jews thought demons in hell gnashed their teeth. So maybe that's what the illusion is to. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that when you do not invest your talents in the kingdom, you're going to get thrown into a place of outer darkness where there's weeping of gnashing of teeth, and you are not going to be a happy camper. All right, we'll stop there. We'll take up the last parable, which is the parable of the sheep and goats in the next video, in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.